An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is Alex Vinegar. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of BetaShares, or BetaShares, as we would say in the U.S., which is Australia's leading provider of exchange-traded funds. ETFs are essentially diversified mutual funds which trade like stocks on an exchange. BetaShares is a homegrown success story. Alex and his co-founders started the company from scratch in 2008, and despite competing against the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard, now have nearly 25 billion Australian under management. One of his first financial services jobs, even before BetaShares, was working for Malcolm Turnbull, later the Australian Prime Minister. Being a successful entrepreneur is impressive enough, but like the best guests on Outside In, Alex is multifaceted. He is a first-generation immigrant. He's a venture capitalist investing in financial technology and innovation. And he is now one of the leading philanthropists coordinating humanitarian aid to his native Ukraine, even as the Russian invasion causes almost unfathomable suffering. Welcome, Alex. Great to be with you, John. What's your origin story? I mean, we often say on this show that interesting people have had interesting lives, and you certainly have immigrant, entrepreneur, philanthropist. How did you become the person you are? Like all stories, it goes back to your roots. I was very fortunate to have been born in a very loving and a very warm family in Ukraine. I was born, of course, during the times when, when Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. But I was surrounded by a lot of love and a lot of warmth and a lot of encouragement from my parents and my grandparents. And uh, growing up, I was very much aware that we are living in a very difficult and very limiting regime. And from early childhood, it's probably fair to say, I was already dreaming of a life with more freedoms and, and more opportunities. So that gives you your vision, what formed your personality? How did you wind up moving to Australia? How did you decide to get into finance? First of all, I, I do owe a, a really tremendous debt of gratitude to my, to my parents who have sacrificed an enormous amount in, in picking up their family and moving to the other side of the world. It's something that I reflect on a lot these days. I'm a father to two beautiful children who are growing up in Australia, and I do reflect more and more on the sacrifice that my family has made. And I must say, as a parent, I hope that if the situation ever arose, I would be able to make the same sacrifice for my children as my parents have made for me. I think it's easier said than done. So I, I would like to believe that I would be as strong to do what my parents have done. But I also know that, that it is easier said than done. And I suppose you only know when you, when you have to cross that bridge. So first of all, 
I think immigration is a really formative experience. And there is nothing special about me. There are obviously millions of immigrants in Australia and the United States and many other countries around the world. And I think the environment where you really are given a cold shower, basically, you know, you're immersed in a completely different culture, completely foreign language that, that you don't really speak a word of. It really places you in a situation where you have to sink or swim, basically. And I was fortunate enough to have been able to learn to swim quickly enough. And of course, everything else sort of follows. But in many ways, my story is, is very much a typical story of immigration. How old were you when you had to have that intensive swimming lesson? We immigrated to Australia in March of 1994. So I was 15, getting close to 16 years old. And what did your parents do in the Ukraine and what did they do when they came over to Australia? And, and I guess the, the key question is, what made them decide that was the time that they had to leave Ukraine? My parents were thinking about leaving for, for a while. Uh, the opportunity to apply, basically, to leave really came along when Soviet Union fell apart at the end of the 80s. And it took us a few years to get permission to come to Australia. Effectively, as soon as we got that permission, uh, at the end of 93, we were kind of ready to, to leave. And then March 94, we, we left. My father's an engineer. My mother was working in early learning and, and as a teacher. Obviously, family coming over to Australia with no English, it was pretty much impossible for my parents to be productive in their, in their field of expertise. So at the very beginning, we, we all did very menial jobs, basically. We were cleaning shops. I was helping my father with that, basically. So I was, I was at school. And, um, you know, we're just doing basically manual labor effectively in order to, in order to get by. One of the things you started, obviously, is beta shares. Um, we're skipping over your university career, where I take it you were a double major in economics and law. But to skip to beta shares, why did you start the company? What were you doing at the time? Why do you think you, this was needed? And in retrospect, why do you think it's been so successful? First and foremost, after graduating from university, I, I joined a, a large U.S. law firm. And in fact, I think at the time it was the largest law firm in the world, which, which sounded like amazing. And I've learned a lot in the short period of the time that I was there. But, but that was kind of my first glimpse of what a big organization, a large organization, you know, with heavy structure looks like. And, and I think at that period of time, I was fortunate to have met some incredible people but also was fortunate to have learned some lessons reasonably early on. I mean, one uh, was the fact that I probably am not cut out to be a lawyer. I recognized very quickly that I'm not going to be great at following instructions of my clients. And, and I probably had like too many of my own ideas basically to really be a great person that implements other people's instructions basically. So that was the first lesson that I learned reasonably quickly. And the second lesson that I learned reasonably quickly is that I probably don't have a future working in a large business, in a large structured business. Maybe at the time, you know, again, reflecting on that now, I kind of think maybe partially it was my impatience and maybe partially it was about the fact that all the steps in your future career in a large organization are kind of laid out in front of you. And there is a particular path that you, that you kind of have to follow, basically. You do three years as a junior lawyer, and then, you know, if you do an adequate enough job, you get promoted, and then you do the next step for the next five years, and maybe you get promoted, and then maybe you make partner. And effectively, I just kind of thought that it's really interesting 
uh, but it's probably not for me. The fact that your future is really mapped out. So again, is it impatience? Yeah, probably to, to, to some extent it's impatience. And the other part of it, I just thought it would be, it would be better to work in a smaller kind of more dynamic environment. So I was very fortunate to have met my next boss, basically was Malcolm Turnbull whilst I was working at Baker McKenzie at the, at the law firm. And he was very kind to have offered me a job in a small business that he was about to start, basically. And that was just an incredible experience. I was given way too much responsibility, more than I deserved, basically, that's for sure. But again, it was the next sink or swim situation in my life. I don't quite know what, what he saw in me uh, at the time, but I was willing to work hard. I was very thirsty for knowledge and we got on famously. And again, it was just like a tremendous opportunity. And, and part of that experience that I had, you know, gave me a broad perspective on the financial services industry. So I was involved in building uh, one of the first at the time, independent financial advisory businesses in Australia. I was involved in insurance and lending. And, and one of the businesses that, that I was helping form and build and I was, I was a young guy at the time. I didn't really have, you know, I had, like, I had like all care, no responsibility, basically. So it was a great position to be able to learn lots of lessons. But, but one of the businesses was, was a, an active management shop, basically, that ran a number of active strategies. And I started noticing reasonably early on that, that they're all smart people, uh, the active you know, managers that we employed and partnered with. But every year, like clockwork, approximately half of them would outperform and the other half would underperform and they all charged, you know, pretty meaningful fees in the process. And that actually really made me think uh, for the first time about starting a business that actually provides exposure to the market. Uh, that was very, very early thoughts. And, and from there, I started researching and eventually ended up actually packing uh, a bag and, and going to New York and spending time there with people in the ETF industry. So this was like 2008. There was actually a global financial crisis time, basically. And I spent some time on the ground talking to entrepreneurs who started, you know, their own businesses, a number of service providers. And, and, and really, those were the early days, basically, of, of forming the foundations of BetaShares. What do you think has been BetaShares' biggest accomplishment and why has it been successful? Well, firstly, John, I would say um, success is a relative measure, and I would still say that we, we have a lot of work to do. Um, yes, we've done a few things right. Our first ETFs launched in December 2010, so we've been, we've been live basically as a business for just over 11 years. And yes, we've done a few things right, but I, I certainly feel that, that there's still a lot of work to do ahead of us. So to the extent you were to say we had any success to date, it probably is due to the fact that we have been focused on the needs of the market that we operate in. We have built the business from ground up. We did not have the benefit of a global franchise, which would focus on exporting capabilities to different parts of the world. We have really been very focused on playing to our strengths, basically, and our strengths are innovation. Uh, strengths are uh, uh, customer focus and ultimately agility, be able to move and evolve as a business. I mean, I grew up playing chess like most Soviet kids. And I often think about the world of chess where, you know, when you're entering a game, you have to have a game plan. You have to know the game that you're going to play. But at the same time, you have to observe what the opponent is doing 
and you have to evolve your strategy and you have to react and adjust along the way, because if you're just blindly following the game that you had in mind at the beginning, you will probably get wiped out because you're, you're not being responsive to what's happening on the other side. And I guess if I was to draw that analogy to the world of business, I think when you're starting a business, it's important to have a business plan. If you're just starting and hoping for the best, if you don't have a plan, it's, it's going to be really tough. Uh, but at the same time, what's probably more important or as important, I should say, is to have the presence of mind and to have the ability to adjust. And uh, I mean, these days, there's a very popular term pivot, basically, where people are pivoting all the time. And it's not necessarily that you have to pivot your strategy fundamentally, but you certainly have to be able to react and adjust and react to, to evolving market conditions. You've said previously that ETFs generally and beta shares specifically have helped to democratize investing, allowing ordinary Australians uh, to purchase diversified portfolios at lower costs than had previously been available. And, and that much financial technology, and you're also an investor in various financial innovations, um, that's developed in the past few years has been did not designed to sort of further democratize investing. Um, think about reduce enabling trading by reducing time and friction, allowing people to trade where they are at any moment. Robert in the US, I think you're actually on the board of a company in Japan that's brought smartphone-enabled investing to that market. In, yeah. in other words, we give everyday people access to powerful investing tools that used to be the exclusive province of investment professionals. As with any powerful tool, some people use them well and others have no idea what they're doing and have lost lots of money. So my question is, what are the obligations of the asset management industry to make sure the products we developed are used properly? Do we have any? Or do we, should we just default to government regulation and sort of say, if it's legal, it's okay, and any collateral damage along the way is what always happens with innovation, sort of Schumpeterian destruction, right? So <laughs> what are our obligations when we either invest or enable the investing of other people's money? I think the obligations are significant, and I feel that the future of our industry is going to be all about combining the, the innovation and that democratization that we talked about with a strong sense of duty and responsibility to do the right thing. There is no question in my mind uh, you know, about the fact that innovation is exciting and innovation should be encouraged. But at the same time, it has to be responsible innovation. So, so firstly, just to address the earlier point around democratization of access, I think it is important. And again, I go back to my kind of roots where everybody was growing up in Soviet Union with no money and we immigrated to Australia with no money. And I always grew up with that understanding that investing is really just for the rich, basically. Uh, you have to be wealthy in order to invest. There's nothing further from truth. And I think getting the right discipline and an opportunity for people to progress financially, whatever their starting point is, is, is really important. So, so I think there is a genuine opportunity for our industry to help our clients financially progress. That is not just about developing smart investment products, but it's actually also, in my view, about encouraging the right types of 
investment behaviors. There's a lot of research, as, as you know uh, better than I do, John, around the fact that investor behavior actually detracts quite significantly from our returns because, because we are emotional beasts uh, as humans. Fear and greed uh, are just two examples of emotion that really uh, affect what we do and how we do it. I certainly feel that the beautiful part about, about technological innovation and the crossover of that with, with some sound and cost-effective investment tools that we as an industry have been developing now for, for well over a few decades, that's going to be the future. I think the future is going to be guiding uh, individual investors, if we're talking about individual investors here in particular, because financial professionals, of course, are well and you know well educated and, and and they know what to do. But if we're talking about individual investors, we can argue that we can argue on that uh, on that as well. But but for individual investors, uh, which is focused on that for a second, I think the opportunity to guide those investors and help them make sound decisions that will, on the one hand, uh, prevent them from making mistakes. Uh, which is probably you know an important enough uh, element, and on the other hand, help get the right disciplines around regular savings and investing, uh, and in some cases, it could be paying off their debt. Basically, in some cases, you know, people invest in financial products where they really shouldn't be investing at all. Like if you have an expensive credit card debt, which is costing you sixteen percent per annum, you're much better off paying that down, you know, before making any investment in an investment product uh, for obvious reasons. So I I feel that the future. Uh, for our industry is going to involve a focus on what is the right thing for the investor, basically, and not just washing the hands at the entry door and saying, hey, like, we're just here to provide the tools, uh, but basically taking that responsibility to guide investors to make better financial decisions. That's certainly motivating me for the second decade of, of, of beta shares, basically. That prompts another question in my mind, and, it, and again, it's a very broad question. As you say, you sometimes think back to your roots. So you are a successful financial services entrepreneur who lived the first 15 years of your life in the Soviet Union. And that gave you a singular set of experiences. And Australia has given you a different look at a competing economic system. And you're an expert in capital markets. So here's the very broad contextual level question. Based on your experiences, what does capitalism get right for society as a whole? And what would be the two or three things that you would focus on to improve if you were somehow the capitalist czar of the world? Having grown up in Soviet Union, on the one hand, you'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm really as passionate a capitalist as they come. But there is another dimension to it, 100%. So look... What does capitalism get right, in my view, is, is efficient allocation of capital, broadly speaking. Not always perfect, but broadly efficient allocation of capital. And there's a lot to be said for that. The second element is competition. I mean, competition is amazing. Uh, competition brings out the best uh, and ultimately benefits the consumer, the customer. There's no question in my mind about that. But I, and, and of course, the third element is innovation. And that really is the corollary of, of one and two. Um, basically, I mean, those are, those are brilliant products of, of capitalism that I subscribe to with, with a great deal of passion and belief. Um, at the same time, I feel that the greatest failure of capitalism is, um, and, and, you know, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but, but at the same time, I, I really do believe that we tend to leave a lot of people behind and, and, you know, kind of the 
eat what you kill mentality, or like, if you're successful, good for you. But if you're not, you know, tough luck, that's really, that's really tough. And I'm not just talking about the, you know, sort of the 1% basically, and the movement around that. But I think the truth of the matter is there are, there are very significant parts of the society that really need to be taken care of basically. And I feel that capitalism in its purest ends up pursuing profits basically you know, quite often at the detriment, um, whether it's the minimum wage, whether it's the, you know, sort of social safety net. And I really do subscribe to, to the idea of responsible capitalism where yes, organizations can pursue profits and can pursue growth and innovation. But at the same time, there is a moral compass basically that guides decisions at the same time and companies focus not just on profit uh, certainly not about maximizing profit at all costs, uh, but at the same time, doing the right thing by the customer and doing the right thing for the society in general. And, and I really uh, try to practice that, I guess, with my own life and with my own family and, you know, sort of try to, try to uh, divide my time on things, which are on the one hand, probably, you know, the purest embodiments of capitalism, but at the same time, uh, you know, things that, that at the end of the day. I'm really going to be proud of, which are going to be the things that, that hopefully will, will, um, will make a small difference in the, you know, in the society more broadly. So let's talk about some of those things. You've been very generous in supporting an array of charitable organizations. You're on the board of the Royal Hospital for Women, for example, but, um, February 24th, 2022, as we all know, Russia invaded Ukraine and your focus obviously was on that event. How did you react initially and how did you come to form the United Ukraine Appeal? At the very beginning, I didn't really think clearly enough. At the very beginning of the invasion, um, probably the best way I could describe it is I was paralyzed with, with, you know, on the one hand being very upset and angry and on the other hand, feeling very sorry for the people that, that I in Ukraine and at the same time, you know, trying to play out in my mind, you know, how does this thing end and how does it get resolved? And, you know, it just, it just ends up in paralysis basically. Um, so for the first few weeks I was pretty useless. I mean, that's the truth. I was not, I was not, uh, useful at work. Uh, I was not useful to my family. I was not useful to my friends. Basically I was, I was just, I was just, um, trying to process everything. And then I woke up one morning with, with, um, thankfully much better clarity thought and I just figured, look, I mean, these are, these are, these are extremely difficult questions, basically. And these are questions that, um, you know, possibly might not be resolved for years. And the best way that I, um, ultimately could, could think about making a difference is, is to really focus on some tangible, you know, step at a time type initiatives, basically. And that, that was really, you know, the first few days when I started thinking a lot clearer. And I started focusing on, on, on tangible steps that I could take in my, in my personal capacity, um, to really start helping people, you know, sort of on the ground basically. And, and from that point onwards, I must say, I have been, you know, super fortunate to have had the support obviously of my family and my team, um, and, and, and a lot of my friends, uh, who have come forward with, with support and encouragement and effectively, um, that gave me the confidence to, to formalize. Uh, what I was doing in my private capacity, you know, into a charitable foundation, which is the United Ukraine Appeal. 
Tell us about the United Ukraine Appeal. What is it doing on the ground in and around Ukraine? So, so United Ukraine Appeal is a, is a registered charity in Australia. It's also um, just, just last week uh, received an equivalency determination uh, in the US, um, which, which again, please uh, have to disclaim any tax advice here, um, obviously, but, but um, I believe the upshot of the equivalency determination means that for US purposes, it will, it will be recognized basically as an equivalent uh, of a registered charity. The United Ukraine Appeal is focused on non-military humanitarian aid to victims of this horrendous war. It's focused on a number of things. The early projects, and we're still continuing with them because they still need, uh, involved us supplying uh, ambulances on the ground in Ukraine and sending those ambulances into, into areas uh, where they're most in need. So in very early days, we had a number of ambulances uh, towards the eastern part of Ukraine and that now there is a fleet basically of them that's, that's operating. And unfortunately the need is not, is obviously not reducing. It's only, it's only getting greater. But those were the early projects. We were sourcing ambulances in, in, in Europe, uh, in Germany in particular, and have been sending them um, over via Poland. Poland has been absolutely incredible in, in facilitating uh, the flow of aid. Um, again, we've, we've focused on non-violent, non-military uh, aid um, only, but that's been, that's been really important and, and, and really brought home the, the difference that even a small, um, uh, you know, sort of a small foundation and a small, you know, number of people out of, out of Australia or the US um, could actually make, uh, you know, on the ground, basically literally um, helping um, save lives and, and get people out of harm's way and, and, and being the difference between somebody being treated and, and surviving and, and not. Um, we're also working on, on projects to help amputees. Uh, again, that's like another, uh, very sad part of the story. Um, just given the nature of weapons and cruise missiles that are being used, there are, there are countless, uh, amputees every day that need specialist treatment and need specialist help and, and no country no matter how well prepared uh, it is, uh, it's ever going to be well enough equipped basically to deal with, um, with a significant spike in people with amputated limbs, basically. So, um, we are, we're working on establishing a rehabilitation center, which, which will specialize, um, on helping through amputees. So there's lots of projects, John, and, and obviously it's something that I can talk about for, for hours, but the upshot is that we have now mobilized a significant wave of support amongst what was early friends and family and now industry support and, 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 and more general public support to really rally behind the cause and, and help those that are in need. And, you know, if I was to, to do a shameless plug with your permission, I would, I would basically say, you know, if, if people have ideas, if people have ways to help. And if there is a role that I can play, if there's a role that our foundation can play in facilitating that and making that happen, I would be not only delighted to do so, but I'd be very grateful. So, so absolutely, this is an open uh, and shameless plot basically to say, we would love to do more. And if, if, if any of your listeners uh, would love to contact us, that would be phenomenal. Let's move on to something a little less serious. Your last name, Miniker, means winemaker or distiller, I think in both Ukrainian and Russian. And I understand you are a wine aficionado. Now, I'm not going to ask you what wines do you like, because it's way too easy a question, and it doesn't mean anything to anyone else. So instead, I'm going to ask you the philosophic question. 
why. And, and, and I'm, I don't mean that at all cynically. I also am a wine lover. But my experience is that some people love wine for the taste. Some have sort of a Proustian memory when they taste the wine, it reminds them of people, places, experiences. Some like to take sort of a scientific view of the liquid, you know, with all sorts of wine speak. Why do you like wine? Well, first of all, I have to live up to my name. So, <laughs> so there is an element of that, which of course I'm, I'm not very serious about. Look, why do I love wine? I love the fact that wine is a great conveyor of stories. Wine is about the place where it's grown. Wine is about the winemaker. Wine is about a phenomenal combination of art and science. To make wine without science is without understanding the process of, of, of winemaking is very hard. And at the same time, purely doing it robotically results in a wine with no character. So I love the combination of all of the above. And I think the bonding of all of those elements together uh, is really phenomenal. So for me, yes, it is partly about the taste. Yes, it is partly about the story. Yes, it is about partly about the winemaker. I think predominantly also, it's about the person that you're drinking it with. I, I'm, I'm absolutely a, a, you know, a wine enthusiast. There's no question about it. But the idea of drinking a great glass of wine or a great bottle of wine on your own, there is nothing, there's nothing that makes me more sad than, than the idea of, of not sharing great wine. So, so for me, it's probably the person that you're drinking it with and the ability to connect and the ability to tell all of those stories, basically, that, that's really the magical part about wine. And that's what attracts me. And that's what drives me. I, I know that you, you're a, a wine enthusiast, a fellow wine enthusiast. And, and I think just the ability to discover and challenge and, and try new things, um, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. Who's the better chess player, you or your daughter? My daughter and my son. How do you relax? I would beat it just, just on that. I came home last night. This is literally, I came home last night at 9 p.m. I had a work function and my son was waiting for me uh, to basically, you know, kick my butt basically in chess. And he succeeded. I lost two games and I went to sleep. How old is he? He's 13. And how old is your daughter? My daughter is 11. And they're both better chess players than you. Yes. It, it, and and I'm, I always used to think that I'm a decent chess player, but uh, clearly, clearly uh, not anymore. If I ever come to visit you, I'm keeping my hands on my wallet around your kids. Uh, <laughs> how do you relax? Uh, family. Family. Family is my sanctuary. I love spending time with them. We cook a lot. I love cooking. And specifically around the relaxing parts, I find that cooking is a phenomenal way to relax, take your mind off things. And I do it with my family. I get my kids involved. My wife loves to get involved. Um, so cooking, cooking is, is magical. What music do you listen to? A lot of Rachmaninoff. Uh, more recently, I love classical music. And given that my kids are 13 and 11, I get Justin Bieber and uh, Nicki Minaj and whatever else basically is thrown into the mix around the house as well. But, but if I get to choose, uh, it would be classical music. What are you reading? 
I have very recently finished a phenomenal book called The Genesis Machine. That is a book on synthetic biology, which is a subject that I have, I'm becoming increasingly obsessed with. And part of the responsibility actually lies with my son, um, who's expressing a lot of interest in that. Uh, but part of it is my own curiosity. I just find, you know, synthetic biology to be an absolutely phenomenal and fascinating uh, subject. It's a combination of, you know, engineering and biology and chemistry and, and many other uh, sciences. And of course, in, in my view, it will play a very significant role in shaping the future um, of humanity in the next in Can the next, you just uh, define century. synthetic biology a little bit? Synthetic biology is a, is, a, is a generic term, which under its umbrella brings a combination of sciences, basically chemistry, biology, computer programming, genetics, and effectively it will have a number of, or it has already a number of applications. So, you know, one of them, which is of most recent use to humanity is development of mRNA uh, vaccine. So for example, Moderna had developed COVID vaccine without having a single molecule of, of COVID uh, virus, basically in its lab. It was all done through computer programming, deciphering the COVID. And, and delivering a, essentially, um, you know, figuring out a vaccine that works. The early examples of synthetic biology um, would be insulin, uh, synthetic insulin, basically. The early days of insulin were production from animals, basically. And of course, very quickly, uh, scientists have figured out that we're going to run out of, you know, cows. And then they, they moved on to pigs. Uh, and very quickly, they figured out, okay, we're going to we're going to run out of pigs, basically, as well. And, and, and of course, necessity is the mother of all invention. Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? Smile more. Thank you. Our guest today on Outside In has been Alex Vinegar, co-founder and CEO of BetaShares, and also a fintech investor. As you've heard, he is definitely multi-talented and multi-interested. I had spent some time with Alex recently and immediately knew that he was the prototypical outside-in guest in that it's very hard to pin him down to one discipline, which is what makes him interesting. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, John. Great speaking with you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCormick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.